The Great American Songbook is one of the greatest exports America has ever had. Paul's always felt that way, and I know a lot of you do, too. In this episode, we present an interview with Jerry Costanzo, a singer, a band leader, and recording artist. Jerry Costanzo's dedicated to the preservation of the American Songbook. Jerry's made several recordings and performs live in concert. His influences include Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, Count Basie, Mel Torme, Jerry Vale, and Nat King Cole. Well, a great background of influences for sure. Hey, did you know that the Paul Leslie Hour is listener-supported? Absolutely. It most certainly is. And if you feel contributory, please just log on to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. Thank you to everyone who contributes and everyone who listens. Now we present Paul Leslie's interview with one of the American Songbook's great friends, Jerry Costanzo. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest, Jerry Costanzo, is a singer and recording artist. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be here. I think most stories are best from the beginning. What was life like growing up? Life was pretty good. Spent a lot of time outside. Not like kids these days who have all these gizmos and uh, digital whatnots to fiddle with in the house. I was out digging holes in the dirt with my tractors and toys and whatnot and playing all sorts of games outside. And on the music end of it, uh, you know, I grew up surrounded by uh, the American Songbook. My father was a musician. My grandfather was a musician, came here from... He came here from uh, Sicily as a musician, played in the in the army band in, during World War One. Growing up, I was surrounded by, uh, you know, my father loved big bands, and that was his thing. My mother and he loved to dance. He was a, a sax player. So, you know, uh, playing around the house constantly were, were you know, were the, the big band band leaders, the Glenn Millers, the Count Basies, Duke Ellington, Stan Canton. Benny Goodman was one of my father's favorite. He was a clarinet player, so we heard a lot of we heard, heard a lot of clarinet around the house and a lot of those recordings. And I tell people that you know the American Songbook kind of like entered into me through osmosis. I see. Yeah. What about singers? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think a Sunday didn't go by where there was some sort of like Sunday with Sinatra going on, and there was always. Back in the 60s and 70s, when I was growing up, you, every day on any major radio station, you would hear the standards. You'd hear Sinatra, you'd hear Nat King Cole, you'd hear Jerry Vell, Mel Torme, and I learned the lyrics. My brothers and I would be driving in the car listening to AM radio and with my parents, and we'd be singing along, you know, I Got You Under My Skin, Orange Colored Sky, or whatever happened to be playing. So Nat King Cole was one of, became one of my big favorites, but... Sinatra was a big influence on me, but I, we listened to them all. My mother was, loved Jerry Vale and uh, Perry Como, so we had tons of those records around the house. Would it be possible for you to pick a singer that has influenced you the most? I would have to say, early on, when I, you know, when I started getting into singing professionally, and I'd have to say Sinatra. That's what we heard the most. He was most prevalent out there on the 
on the scene, being Italian-Americans, Sinatra was playing a lot around our house, and he was a big influence on me. Plus the vast, the vast library of recordings that he did. I mean, I don't think anyone recorded more standards than Sinatra. Without trying, it was it had it would have to be Sinatra. But as I became a professional singer, you know, I discovered you know other singers that that continued to have a, a big influence on me. And, and I'm a big listener of of Nat King Cole and these days Johnny Hartman, Billy Eckstein. I really sunk my teeth into it. But it all started with Sinatra, I'd have to say. Tell us about studying acting. I didn't know, you know, as an adolescent, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I, I used to picture myself performing, and, you know, I never had anybody push me toward that, but, you know, I, I just had this, this aching to, to perform, to be on stage, and and I was very shy and insecure as a, as a teenager, and, and I decided one day that I was going to try to get over my my self-consciousness and my shyness, and I was going to take some acting classes. So I didn't go to college for, for acting, but I, I studied at some of the acting studios in Manhattan, uh, namely uh, the Herbert Berghoff studio. And like they say, I really caught the bug. I had done a whole bunch of community theater shows and and had really gotten into it. But life intervened. I was young and got married, had to raise a family. You know, my son was born, and so I kind of like, I kind of put my a lot of my my artistic passions aside for probably a little over ten years. So, but I did get a, a fill of that, and and then I rediscovered my passion to be on stage with with us with my music and with the singing, which turned out to be much more rewarding for me. I mean, that really you know I really wrapped my whole my whole life around uh, what I'm doing now. I prefer being a, a singer and a performer and an entertainer than I than I did acting. That describes it good enough for you. Yeah, and I also thought it was interesting. One of the ways you supported yourself, you worked with Al Pacino. That's right. I knew you were going to ask that. I had mentioned Herbert Berghoff's studio, that apparently Al Pacino had studied there early on. I was living in Queens, New York, sharing an apartment with a buddy of mine, and going to this acting course, these acting courses pretty regularly and decided, you know, I need a job. I had grown up on Long Island, which is about 50 miles away from Manhattan, but I moved in closer to Manhattan to be closer to the acting school and decided I was going to get a job in Manhattan to support my uh, support myself. And there used to be a bulletin board in the lobby of the acting studio, the Herbert Berghoff studio, and, you know, people would post things on it. Not like today where you got the Internet and Craigslist and all that sort of thing. I mean, people posted things, you use the newspaper, but there was a there was a uh, help wanted with the little tear offs on the bottom and a, and a phone number. All it said was driver wanted. I said, all right, let's see what this is all about. I I called the number. One thing led to another. I met a guy. The guy told me, uh, you're going to be working for. I want you to know if you get this job, you're going to be working for a celebrity. Do you have a problem with that? I said no, but I still didn't know who I was working for. He didn't divulge that information yet. But as soon as I heard that, I got on the subway, went all the way back downtown, because the interview was uptown, and I went back to that bulletin board, and I tore that paper off the wall and threw it in the garbage. To make a long story short, I ended up getting the job. This gentleman, Jim, who was Al's office manager, told me, he goes, gee, Jerry, you know, uh, I'm surprised a lot. Only you and another guy applied for this, so and we like you, so I think we're going to hire you. 
and you're going to be working for and you're going to be working for Al Pacino. Little did they know that I had I had kind of put the odds in my favor by tearing that that help wanted off the wall down in the studio. But I spent a year and a half working for him. I met I rubbed elbows uh, with a lot of people. I met Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken. David Mamet, who's a famous playwright. Now the names are all eluding me, but I met Francis Coppola. This was the early 80s, so a lot of these guys were still in their, in their prime. But I, you know, I was young. I guess I was in my early 20s. I always tell people, had I, had I known now what I, you know, then I, you know, I probably would have been able to get my, my foot in more doors. I, I guess I might have been a little immature and unsophisticated at the time. That's kind of the, the long and the short of that story. Tell us about meeting Andy Farber. Andy Farber. Well, I first met Andy Farber like 1981. He was 12 years old, maybe 13. I was like 20. And I had taken this course at a college near me on Long Island called Stony Brook University. I would taken this jazz improvisation course with Arnie Lawrence and uh, Bud Johnson, a guy by the name of, I forget the piano player's name, but they were running this jazz improvisation course. And I was also a saxophone player, so I just, you know, I wanted to sink my teeth more into jazz improvisation and play the saxophone like Dexter Gordon. But I get there, I get to this, another long story short, I get to this improv course, and there's this kid there who can play the saxophone like, you know, like Charlie Parker, you know, I was like, and I'm like, what am I wasting my time for? Listen to how this kid can play. I'll never be able to do that. So that was my first meeting with Andy Farber. But then, when I started getting back into music, say, uh, like 10 years later or more, now he's, let's say, maybe 20 years later, maybe he's, he's in his mid-30s or 30, I'm, I'm 40, because he he's 10 years younger than me, exactly 10 years younger than me. We met, I kind of told him that story, how I, you know, he goes, oh yeah, so one thing led to another, and he needed a singer, a male singer for uh, his, he has a, a, an octet called the Swing Mavens, where he wrote all original arrangements, and the girl that sang with the band had moved to Canada, taken a teaching job at like some university in Winnipeg. So, you know, I kind of like nudged my way into that band as the, as the male vocalist. And, you know, I really learned a lot being around him and all the people he introduced me to. It's like they say, you surround yourself. You want to be the best, surround yourself with the best. You know, I tell people Andy Farber is like, it's like Billy May and Nelson Riddle wrapped up in one guy. I mean, if, you know, guys like he and I, had we been around in the in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you know, we'd be big stars. That's Andy Farber. There's the Andy Farber story in a nutshell. I want to talk about your single, Can I Steal a Little Love? Yeah. That kind of all happened by accident. Andy called me up. He he's, works for a jingle company called Duotone in Manhattan. He does a lot of work for them. Jingles, scores for movies and commercials and uh, all sorts of stuff that requires some great arranging. And the, the guy is just a phenomenal arranger and composer. They had given him a project and Duotone, that is, had given him a project and told him, you know, we need this thing in a week. We need a rendition of the song. We don't want to license the Sinatra version. It's going to cost too much money because we're, we're only submitting this. We don't even know if we're going to get the job, if we're going to, if this is going to be used in the in the project. So Andy, uh, re- what he did was he recorded. We took four guys and recorded what we call a four-man big band. 
Andy played all five saxophones, two altos, two tenors, and baritone. He played piano, good friend of ours, Andy Andrew Williams, great trombone player and bass player. He played all four trombones and the bass. And then Brian Pareschi, another uh, regular around the New York City scene, he played all four trumpets. And then a friend of ours, John Mele, Mele, he played drums. Originally, Andy played the drums, but we replaced the drum track with a professional drummer. We did this thing really quick. He called me up. He said, you know, come up. I need you to put your, your voice to this thing, and it's got to be sent out to uh, California with tomorrow. So I went up and recorded it. It was like two or three takes. It was submitted. It, it never got picked up. I had a, co- I had a, you know, a, an MP3 version of it, the original track. And I just called Andy recently. I said, you know, that tune, remember that tune we did? He goes, yeah. I go, he goes, he goes, yeah, nothing ever happened with it. I said, can I get that from Duo Tone? He goes, yeah. He goes, call them up. You know, see what they say. So I called up Duo Tone. They said that sure, you can, you know, we'll let you use it. You know, just, just mention us on the, uh, on the, on the cover. So basically, it all just happened. I didn't plan it. I got paid for it, and it was just a, a quick thing, but it turned out so well. I mixed it, remixed it, and mastered it, and that's what you're listening to. Of all the songs you do, is it possible to pick a favorite? Of all the songs I do, is it possible? I tell you, I have like a, you know, whenever I do a, a gig, I do a lot of private gigs even concerts and clubs. I have a song that I always end my evening with, if if I can. It's called We'll Be Together Again. It was a tune that was actually written by Frankie Lane. Remember Frankie Lane? And then Frank Sinatra also recorded a really great version of it. Diane Shure recorded a nice version of it with the Count Basie Orchestra. It's called We'll Be Together Again. That's one of my favorite songs. Our special guest is singer Jerry Costanzo. How do you approach recording a song that has been previously done by so many artists? Well, I try to think of something I like. Like, for instance, I think you have a copy of my CD, Can't We Be Friends? Yes. I wanted to, uh, I wanted a kind of like, you know, I always loved George Shearing when he did like that. But it's called the George Shearing Sound, and it's it's like guitar vibes and piano and they kind of they kind of play in unison what's called block chords well anyway i kind of like stole that vibe a little bit and and applied it to this cd and i i explained to uh the, the arrangers that were on there which were andy farber a guy by the name of mike carubia and ted firth awesome piano player and arranger as well they arranged all the tunes on there, but I, you know, we had. A, I told them I had. This is the vibe I'm looking for. I'm looking for this that, that sound. I want those vibes and 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 what they turned came up with were these these awesome arrangements. And basically, after hearing the arrangements, being able to approach the tune after hearing the arrangements, that's 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 how that happened. The feeling I got from listening to these beautiful arrangements. Why do you think the songs of the American Songbook have endured? People have asked me that before. They're timeless. People don't really write too many songs these days anymore that that can conjure up feelings, that can bring tears to your eyes, that tell a story, that have these just timeless and beautiful melodies. And I think I don't think that's ever going to go away. It's going to constantly come full circle. 
when one generation listens the heck out of them, you know, a new generation is going to come up and, and discover these tunes. They're constantly going to be discovered. we got to hope that there are guys like me and that are going to put this stuff in front of the youth. Because, you know, I've met a lot of youth, a lot of young people who are, you know, all into hip-hop and rap and, you know, all this different stuff. And there's, a, there's some good artists out there that play some decent stuff these days that are melodic, but... I'll tell you, you turn you turn some kid on to, uh, you know, I've got you under my skin, fly me to the moon, and they hear it for the first time, and it's like brand new to them, and they're like, wow, I really, I really like that. I really love that. It, it transcends generations. What is the best thing about being Jerry Costanzo? <laughs> oh, man. The best thing is that I was fortunate to take a, a leap of faith and just say, I'm going to spend, I'm going to, you know, at the age of 35, 37, whatever it was, I'm, I said to myself, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing what I love to do. I put my mind to it. I put my talents to it. You know, I spend my days now as a singer. I'm a full-time band leader and, uh, and singer. You know, a lot of people spend their whole lives never really finding out what their true passion is. They go to work every day. You know, I did that too. I was, you know, I was in the construction industry. I did plumbing. I, did, I, was, a, I was a lineman for 15 years climbing telephone poles. It was just a job. It was never, I was never passionate about it. So that the beauty of being me is being able to do what I love to do. You know, when I get depressed or I get sad, I go, wait a minute. What reason do I have to be depressed or sad? I'm following my dreams. What would you say to anyone listening to this interview? I would like to tell everybody out there to, to discover what it is you love and go after it. Don't be afraid to take chances. And as far as the music's concerned, I want you to discover and keep listening to the great American songbook, the jazz, the swing, the great, the great composers and, and crooners of the 20th century. And if that's your passion, you should follow it. Mr. Costanzo, thank you so much for this interview. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, too. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for the music. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com Click on Support the Show and thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song Corina Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me! The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.